0: to that passage right now. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. to the glory of God, the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning, everybody. This passage from Philippians 2 that we're looking at this morning starts off with a tiny but loaded little word, the word if. If. Um, in fact, this word, if, is repeated four times, kind of right off the bat in verse 1. Um, and this word is at the beginning of a whole bunch of statements that you and I know by heart. Let's see real quick if you guys uh, can finish off some of these with me. Uh, let's see how well you know these ones. If it, if it ain't broke. Good job, good job. How about this one? If at first you don't succeed. All right, this is, this is Walt Disney. If you can dream it, okay. You're a little bit better than eight thirty, but you guys are not Disney people. <laughs> My word, yeah. If you can dream it, you can do it. It's okay. I'm not really a Disney person myself. Uh, if the shoe fits, okay. My favorite childhood one. If you're happy and you know it. Good job, good job. I knew, I knew, I knew people at eleven were actually going to clap their hands. I was banking on you guys. Um. In our text this morning, we find Paul dropping uh, four kind of big if statements that maybe we don't quite know by heart, but they're pretty good ones, guys. Uh, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. And the reason this little word is so big, so weighty, even though it's just two little letters Is because of the conditional nature of its meaning, right? If implies a conditional response. It does. Because it leaves room for doubt. If is a question. If leaves us hanging a little. Because it gives us a choice. There's a conditional response waiting in the wings of an if statement. And these four ifs right at the beginning of chapter 2 should get our attention really quickly. The fact that Paul repeats it four times shows us that the conditional nature of what he's about to get into is really, really important. What he's about to say is really meaningful. And remember that he's in prison. He's writing to some of his dearest friends, the church in Philippi. He's not sure if he'll see them again. And he wants to communicate important truths to them about what it means to follow Jesus, about, about how this stuff should really impact their lives, how to follow God. And he's building to something important here. And so he says, if, if, if you're someone that's been impacted by Jesus, if this matters to you, if you've received comfort and tenderness from being united with Christ and his Holy Spirit, if this matters to you. And here's where this conditional statement kind of gets its power. Because if those things are true for you, then the rest of what he's about to say applies to you. (laughs) If it's true for you, then you don't get to be exempt from what he's about to say. You have to take into account what he's about to say. However, if it's not, then you can feel free to skip right over it. You know, if you're, if you're not brought encouragement and love and comfort from being united to God, then feel free to close the letter. Feel free to close the Bible. Skip right over it. But Paul knows, of course, that his friends in Philippi do love God very much, that they have been brought encouragement from being united to Christ. So he knows that these if statements will be met with a conditional so-then response. And I love Eugene Peterson's translation of this text. Uh, this is, you probably are very familiar with this text you read. This is one of the more famous passages in the New Testament. But I want to read it to you from the message because it's so fresh, and I think Eugene Peterson really gets at, at what Paul's, Paul's saying here. It says, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, If being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. And having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far above anyone or anything ever, so that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow and worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. I love that. If you have a heart, if you care. And of course we've been changed by Christ. Of course we have. Of course he's made a difference in our lives. Of course we care. So then. So then. So then. We're to look to the example of Christ in order to figure out how to love each other well, how to put ourselves aside in order to help other people get ahead. How to humble ourselves and serve each other. How to consider others better than ourselves. Love each other and step aside and serve each other. I mean, those are a couple things that are really easy to talk about and very, very difficult to do, right? (laughs) And even more, I think there are a couple things that are fairly counterintuitive to our culture. Yes. I mean, the way of our world has always been to figure out where you stand in the pecking order. I, I don't know about you, but I've never owned chickens. Any, anybody own chickens in here? Oh, okay, a couple of you. Maybe I should have brought you up and had you explain. <laughs> Lucky for us, that one of my favorite authors describes this, this quite well for us. Take ten chickens, any ten, put them in a pen together and spread a little chicken feed. In short order, you will witness an amazing phenomenon. In a matter of minutes, the chickens, previously strangers, will form a hierarchy based on dominance, or in everyday language, they will establish a pecking order. Instinctively, they will determine through a series of skirmishes who the number chicken will be, then the number two, then the number three, all the way down to the unlucky number ten chicken. Much is at stake in this dance of domination. Chicken number one pecks and intimidates chicken number two without experiencing any kind of retribution from chicken number two. Chicken number two will take it from chicken number one, but will turn around and peck away at chicken number three, who will in turn take out its frustration on chicken number four. The pecking order continues all the way down to chicken number ten, who needless to say has a pretty miserable life. Pecked, but no one to peck. But this is the way of the world we live in every junior high school and every corporate business, every grocery store checkout line, and every cell phone commercial on television. I mean, we live in a narcissistic society and at our core in our fallen state, this is who we are as people. We're born and bred to work hard. I mean, especially as Westerners, we're told to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, to be the very best we can be, to push our way to the front of the line and I mean, yes, we, we sort of encourage ourselves to be polite along the way, to have a few friends along the way, but should they get in our way of our success or progress or our popularity, then we might just need to cut them off in order to get ahead. But the way of Jesus is completely against a pecking order. This whole, like, me first, I deserve it, I earned it, I want it my way. I'm right. It's anti to the way of Jesus. If you've read much Paul, you know that he regularly appeals to the example of Jesus Christ to help Jesus' followers know how to do this Jesus life sort of thing. Not only to help us see that it's okay to do life in the way of Jesus, but to show us that it's expected of us. Remember the whole, like, if you've gotten anything out of following Christ, then you are to do this. But the way of Jesus and the way of the kingdom, it's so counterintuitive. Love and serve each other. Step aside and help others get ahead. I mean, that stuff can take a very long time to actually sink in and actually live out. And so I don't really care how long we've all been following Jesus. This is still something we need to hear again and again and again, right? Yes, the world will always encourage us to step on each other, to push and to strive and to grasp. Peck, peck, peck. Not so with Christ. Christ. The way of Jesus means stepping quite intentionally to the back of the line. It means putting yourself last, pushing other people ahead, helping someone else win instead of you, helping someone else succeed, putting other people first. In Mark 10, Jesus called his disciples together and he said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and their officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus basically says, Watch how I do it. You don't know how to do this in your family? You don't know how to do this in your workplace. You don't know how to do this at your school, in that classroom. I will be your example. And so there's a couple truths I think we can pull from the example of Christ from our text this morning. And they're hard truths to hold. The first one is, it's just not all about me. Uh, The way of Christ is always going to be all about other people always and the character trait that God always wants to see in us more and more in us is love and all the one and another statements in scripture are going to back me up on this <laughs> I mean if our faith our relationship with God is always just about us and Jesus then we're probably in trouble that means our world has gotten really really small How can I love unless it's not about me? We're to focus on other people. We're to open up our tiny little world and focus on others. And that's a huge shift in perspective. That's a totally different shift. You guys remember the story of the prodigal? I mean, not the prodigal, the Good Samaritan? Um, You have the priest and the Levite that come upon a man that's been badly beaten and robbed on the road. Martin Luther King Jr. has this really great quote that illustrates the shift just perfectly. He says, the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? It's a paradigm shift. And I think the reason we don't really live like this is it's, it's scary. Our pride and our ego and our fear keep us from focusing outward. We're concerned about if it'll be fair, if we're going to get hurt in this exchange. But 1 Corinthians 6 says, that you know what, it's better to be cheated and wrong sometimes than to get our own way all the time. I think our ego and our pride prevent us from focusing on others. We get so hung up on what might happen to us if we just love freely and recklessly. There's this great quote by Ezra Benson that says, pride is concerned with who is right, but humility is concerned with what is right. how many of our relationships struggle or are even just ruined because we can't get over who's right and who's wrong or who deserved it and who didn't deserve it we get stuck there but the foundation of Christianity the foundation of this whole thing is that it doesn't really matter that much who's right and who's wrong It doesn't matter who deserves it and who doesn't deserve it, but that we love each other anyway, because we have a Savior that modeled what it meant to humble himself, and he was right. He deserved it. He became one of us, and he showed us what it looked like to sacrifice and to forgive. It's just not really all about us. I think the second hard and heavy truth to hold here is that the way up is actually down. The way to succeed in God's kingdom, the way to the very top of God's ladder, seems to always be the way of humility and service and sacrifice. In Romans 12, we're, we're told we just ought to not think of ourselves too highly. <laughs> and, and this is not like self-loathing we're talking about here at all. This just means taking the focus off of ourselves. C.S. Lewis says it like this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. <laughs> that's that's short and to the point, isn't it? I mean, Jesus littered the New Testament with phrases like, the last will be first, the first will be last. If you want to be great, you must be the servant of all. When you give up your life for God and for others, you'll find that you actually get your life, your real life, your true self. And this is a total value inversion from the way the world sees things. But it's a truth that will transform us and redeem us when we allow ourselves to believe it, but also live it. You know, it's in giving up everything to redeem his creation that Jesus is glorified. It's in sacrificing everything that every knee will bow and every tongue will profess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I mean, Jesus didn't cling to his deity. He gave it up freely to get next to you and I. That's the example we have from our God. Yet so often, I mean, how often do we hold on to our little bit of power? How often do we hold on to our tiny bit of authority, our position? We spend so much energy trying to assert our independence And Jesus is standing there saying, but if my love has made any difference in your life, if you've received any comfort in being connected to my Holy Spirit, then there's this different way I'm calling you to live. A couple years ago in small group at at youth, we were talking about the same text actually. And I was trying to illustrate this in a way that would hopefully make it come alive for our students. And so many of our kiddos are athletes, and so I had them all sort of just stop and imagine that they were freshmen on a competitive soccer team. And I said, okay, like, maybe it would be helpful for you guys to imagine your classroom or your place of business or your family dynamics, whatever. Um, But I had them all imagine that they were on a competitive soccer team and that, of course, their goal would be by the time they were a senior in high school that they would be able to have earned the right to be captain of that soccer team. And so I told them to imagine four years of working toward that goal of going to every practice on time and showing up prepared and being at every game and every tournament and playing their best and eating right and going to bed at a reasonable hour and making the kinds of choices that often a lot of their peers weren't making so they could be healthy and whole and and play like above and beyond their teammates and respecting the the other previous captains. And then I asked them to imagine that they, they got to that senior year and they were quite obviously the best pick for captain. And then when it came to that day to pick captain, they instead of taking the role, gave it to someone else and push someone else to succeed and get ahead. And you can probably imagine what happened in that group. (laughs) The kids lost their minds, like freaked out. I lost control of the whole group. Like (laughs) they were screaming and shouting. I mean, literally, we ended in tears. I'm not at all exaggerating. Um, Questions like, that's insane. That is ludicrous. Why on earth would I invest all that time and energy and then just give away my success? what are you trying to suggest? That God doesn't want me to succeed? Well, this is absolutely backwards. This is backwards. And I was sort of loving it. I mean, I handed it up on purpose. Um, but it was great. I mean, it was illustrating quite profoundly exactly what I wanted to illustrate in that room that night. But as we kept talking about it, as we kept unpacking what this looked like and what this meant, we eventually turned the corner and got to like The real question behind what it looks like to love like that, what it looks like to step aside and push someone else ahead. And the questions that came up were but what will happen to me? Who will look out for me if I love like that? Who's going to take care of me? Won't I be miserable? if I push others ahead? And I just wonder if maybe that's the issue and where we get stuck so much of the time. And maybe that's why Paul starts this section with like so many big if questions. Because he knows that what Jesus is calling us into, what he's asking us to live into, is so counterintuitive to the world around us. Into to the brokenness that we constantly live with. That it will feel insane some of the time. That we will find ourselves asking, but who will look after us if we live recklessly like that, if we just love recklessly like that? And we're going to need to remember that, yes, indeed, we have found encouragement of being united to Christ. Indeed, yes, I have found comfort from his love. Yes, I have found the fellowship of being connected to the very spirit of God. That I do experience tenderness and compassion because of God's goodness in my life. We're going to need that if-then reminder that we can do it. That God has us. That he has been caring for us then and he will call, as he calls us, he will care for us as we move forward. He will bring us through it. That he's already been making a difference in our lives, and he will continue to. It may seem crazy. It may seem insane, especially measured against the ways of this world, but he is trustworthy. He is good. He is faithful. And even more than that, he was willing to go first. He already modeled it for us. He already did it. He gave up everything. To get next to us. Showing us the way forward. When we lose ourselves for others, that is where real glory is found. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is a hard truth to hold. But it is your truth, and so I pray that it would be a fresh reminder for us this morning that we would step aside and help others get ahead. That we would trust that you have got us so we don't have to fear. We can love recklessly. You are so good and so faithful. Thank you for showing us what that looks like. And let it bring you all the glory. Amen.